You join me in prayer. Father, you created us to enjoy your majesty forever. And it is such a joy to come together this morning and to sing those words. Lord, we realize that your majesty is most fully displayed in the cross of Jesus Christ. And therefore, as we look to the cross and we, and we are able to grasp your grace and your love for us, that we are filled with joy. The cross of your Son, His death for us and His resurrection and, and the salvation that you've accomplished by your grace for us fills us with joy, Father. There is no greater joy than the joy of your salvation. And we praise you for that this morning. Thank you for revealing your majesty to us. Without that, we would be restless and searching and longing and empty and hungry. But God, you've filled us with yourself. Lord, we praise you for saving us and, and we praise you for being a God who who speaks to us and relates to us, who comforts us and helps us, and who gives us grace. Lord, you give grace to the humble, not to the proud. And so this morning we humble ourselves before you. We confess that we are still empty-handed. We have nothing to bring this morning. We have nothing to offer. We are not sufficient of ourselves to glorify you or to enjoy you. We're so prone to sin and to wander. And we pray that during these next 45 minutes, you would pour out your grace through your word by your spirit in our hearts. Lord, create life in us according to your word and revive life in us according to your word and cultivate the fullness of life that Jesus promised to us according to your word this morning. Give us the ears to hear and the eyes to see and the hearts that are soft to you and to your work. That we would leave here as a people that have been changed as we behold your glory. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. And well, uh, you guys might know I'm not Ryan Limbaugh, um, Phil Moser, and quite a, quite a big difference in our appearances, I think, so... Um, that was probably not ne needed to say that. But um, Ryan is out of town. Um, I believe that he is supporting his brother's golf tournament, right? And so that's a wonderful chance for, for him to be with his brother, who's the coach at Vanderbilt University. I think he's coming back tonight or tomorrow morning, but you can pray for him. Um, we're going to be taking a break in Colossians. We've been in our deeper series for two more than two months, I guess, four months now. But we've been through two chapters of the book of Colossians. And this week and next, we're going to take a break before we pick back up Headed into the summer. But um, today is not unrelated to Colossians. Um, today has much to do with the message of the book of Colossians. You, you might remember that in Colossians, um, Paul continually saying to the church that he wants them to continue in the faith and he wants to find them firm in the faith and to remain steadfast in the faith. And today we're going to have a chance to, to test ourselves at that point. Um, but before we get into today's sermon, today's text, I just want to 
let you know about a story of mine. Uh, when I was 10 years old, my dad took me to my first ever Washington Redskins NFL football game. All right. Now, up to this point, I had only been to Baltimore Orioles baseball games. All right. So does anyone know how the Orioles, not the last few years, but, but for the 20 years before the last few years, how the Orioles have done in baseball? Terrible. They've been, they've been awful. You know, so, so when I first started watching the Orioles, Cal Ripken was still on the team, but he was so old and so um, not able to play anymore that the one time I saw him get a hit, he fell on his way to first base. All right. And so that was my experience of going to sporting events, was going to these terrible Orioles baseball games where no one's excited and stadium's empty. So now I'm at a Redskins game. First time. I didn't know football at all. I never really watched football. Um, my dad knew a guy that got his tickets on the 50-yard line, 11 rows up, opening day. All right, I was 10 years old. Again, Orioles games, all I've ever experienced. It was so, so loud in that stadium. It was, so, I'd never experienced anything like it. And I had no idea what was going on, but it was so much more exciting than baseball. And the whole game, I asked my dad questions, and, and we're singing the, the victory song, Hail to the Redskins, and I was hooked. I mean, I was just hooked, and I've been a lifelong Redskins fan ever since. I should have worn my tie today, but I didn't. People down here think it's a Florida State tie. It's not. That's offensive. But, um, you know, I love the Redskins. I played Madden, and I'm, and I'm playing with my friends, and I got my Redskins jersey, and my Redskins shorts, and my Redskins hat. Huge Redskins fan, right? So about seven years later, I'd not been to a game since, and my dad says, I got tickets to a game. So I'm so excited. So we're going to go do this again. And so we got tickets. I get my Redskins gear on. I, I know what I'm watching now, which is exciting, and we're pulling up to the stadium. Um, we see it's FedEx Field, and I, I'm walking towards the stadium with fans all around me. We're all singing the song, Hail to the Redskins. We go to our seats, and, and the game's about to start. They call the starting lineups out. They start playing the game. We're cheering. It's exciting. And then about five minutes into the first quarter, all the starters on both sides of the game are pooled. Someone might have a guess at why they did that. When, when, do, they, when do they pull the starters in, in NFL games? Preseason. This was a preseason game, and so the starters are pooled. Fans are leaving, quality of play is going down, and I'm just like, this, this isn't the same. This isn't the real thing. It felt like the real thing. It was ex as exciting as the real thing. It had all the appearances of being the real thing, but it was not. It was, it was ingenuine. It was preseason football. No one likes preseason football, and they need to get rid of it. That's another sermon, <laughs> right? Now, that's obviously a very inconsequential example of some, something not being the real thing. It's just football. But in Scripture, there, there's several different points in the New Testament where Jesus is speaking, or, or James is speaking, or Paul is speaking, and, and they're saying that there are people in this world who think that in terms of their Christianity, they have the real thing, but they don't. That they have the real thing. That they, don't, they, they have all the appearances of the real thing, and they believe they have the real thing. Other people believe they have the real thing, but they don't. Um, we're going through the Sermon on the Mount on... Um, Wednesday nights right now in Build, and we're going to look at this text in a few weeks. But there's a text in the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus is describing Judgment Day, and he's describing um, people coming to him believing that they lived for him, that they would be saved. There are people coming to him believing that they would be saved by him, and they, and they say, Lord, did we not cast out demons in your name? Did we not do all these mighty works in your name? Jesus, did we not live for you? And Jesus' response is, I never knew you. I never knew you. Depart from me. And that, that is such a frightening reality. That there are people who right now believe that they will be saved on that day and will find out that that is not the day of salvation for them. That's the day of condemnation for them. 
And they're going to be utterly shocked and surprised by that reality because they believe they have the real thing. And it appears they have the real thing, but that day will come and they won't. Jesus will say, I never knew you. And it'll be the day of judgment. We, we don't want to get to that day and be surprised. I don't want anyone in, in Redeemer Church to get to that day and be surprised at Jesus' response to their faith. We want, we, this morning is an opportunity for us to be tested. It's an opportunity for us to, to put ourselves under God's word and, and, and to let our faith be tested. And I want to ask, I, I was struggling with this myself this past couple of weeks that I've looked at this text, is um, coming with the assumption that, that you're good. It's, it's easy right now to come, with, come to this text with the assumption that you're good. But that's the exact mistake that those people will make, right? They're coming with the assumption that they're good, that they have the real thing, and then it's too late once they find out they don't. So I want to ask this morning, right now, for the posture of your heart to be, Lord, search me. Maybe, maybe, maybe you became a Christian 30 years ago, or maybe you just became a Christian. Maybe you feel like you're doing well. Maybe you don't feel like you're doing well. But this morning, come and say, Lord, search my faith, test my faith, Show me whether it's genuine or not. I don't want to be surprised on that day. I want to know I have the real thing. Come with that posture this morning. Ask God to shine his word as a spotlight on your heart. Just take a minute now to to pray to the Lord and ask him to do that. Ask him, shine your word on my heart so that I know what is the state of my faith. Is it genuine or not? We're going to be in the book of James, and you can turn there, the book of James, James chapter 2. James was written to a church that had all the appearances of being the real thing. Uh, they, it, was a, it was a group of Jewish Christians who, who gathered together regularly to worship and to grow, and, and they confessed um, faith in Jesus Christ as the Savior from their sins. They had all the appearances of the real thing, but James had heard reports about things going on in these churches. Um, things like favoritism, where um, they were showing favoritism to the rich and not and ignoring the poor. Things like conflict, they were, they were just having um, divisions within themselves and arguments with each other. Things like um, clinging to riches and, and and pursuing worldly wealth as an idol. And you know those aren't those aren't things like like murder or. Um, or stealing from a bank, right? Those, those are very normal types of sins. But James has seen these, these patterns of division and conflict and favoritism, and he's concerned that they don't have the real thing. He's concerned that they may have made a profession of faith that never entered their heart. And so he's writing this letter to, to call them to genuine faith. He's writing this letter to, to tell this church, I, I believe that you believed in Jesus Christ, but you're not living like it. And so I'm afraid that that you might not have genuine faith. So I'm writing this to you to call you to genuine faith in Jesus Christ. And James chapter 2 is, is really the heart of the letter where he gets at the issue of what type of faith do you have. So we're going we're gonna to look at 2, 14 through 26. We're going to read that together. We're going to spend most of our time in, starting in verse 18, but we're going to read starting in verse 14. So James chapter 2, starting in verse 14, James tells the church, What good is it, my brothers, If someone says he has faith, but does not have works, can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, Go in peace, be warmed and filled, 
without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness, and he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. And in the same way, was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. Three times in this passage, James states his main argument. Faith apart from works is dead. That's his point. That's what he's trying to convince the church of. Faith apart from works is dead. You see it in verse 17, in verse 20, and in verse 26. He, he bookends it with that point, and then he um, says right in the middle, faith apart from works is useless. So we know clearly that's what James is arguing. Uh, we need to ask, what, is, what does he mean by dead? And we get that answer in verse 14. Look down at verse 14 again, how he starts this whole argument. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? So he's asking the question, can faith without works save somebody? And then later he says, faith without works is dead. So, so that clarifies for us, what does he mean by dead? He means faith without works is not able to save anybody. A faith that does not have works, is not accompanied by works, has no saving ability. That's his point. Now in this text he gives three examples of faith. He's going to give three different examples of quote-unquote faith. And we're going to see why I'm putting quotes around that. But three examples of faith that will help demonstrate his point that faith without works is dead. And so we're going to start here just going through these examples in verse 18. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works and I will show you my faith by my works. Now what's, what's going on there? This is kind of an, an introduction to James's argument. Someone James just said, faith without works is dead. And now someone in the church, James is anticipating their response to him saying that by someone saying, James, you just said faith without works is dead. I don't agree with that. Like, you, you want to keep faith and works together, but I think faith and works are separate. You have faith, I have works. I have faith, you have works. doesn't matter. They're, they're two separate things. And James is um, going to come back at that, that possible objection that someone might make in the church with this challenge. He says, okay, let, let's say that you want to separate faith and works. Well, let's do that. You, you prove to me that you have faith, but here's the qualification. You're not allowed to do anything to prove that. Prove to me that you have faith, but no works allowed, because you want them to be separate. But I think they're together, and so I'll prove to you that I have faith by works. Who's going to win that challenge? James, right? I mean, how, how could someone prove that they have faith without works? That's his point. You can't prove that you have faith without works. If I, if I came to you and I said, Redeemer Church, I've been thinking a lot about it, and I really, really believe I can fly. I believe I can fly. I believe I have that ability. 
what would convince you that I really believed that? What? Yeah, I mean, I'm. what if I sang the song? You know, what if next Sunday we choose that song in our worship set and we're all singing, I believe, and I'm saying really passionately, I believe I can fly, right? <laughs> would that convince you? might convince some people, but but it shouldn't, right? Mark said it. It would convince you that I believe I can fly, not that I actually can, but just that I really believe it. If I get up on the roof and I jump off the church and try to fly, right? Now, I'm not going to do that. I don't believe it. But just for the sake of the illustration, I need to actually do something to show my faith. I need, I need to prove it by, by a work. And that's James' point. You can't, you can't show that your faith is genuine without works. You can't separate them. And so to press this point in further, we see the first example in verse 19. You believe that God is one, you do well, even the demons believe and shudder. So the first example of quote-unquote faith is demons. It's the faith of demons. He starts by, by telling this person, you believe that God is one. He, he's referring back to the Old Testament, to Deuteronomy 6, where um, one of the core affirmations of the faith was the Lord our God, the Lord is one. That, that was a core affirmation of Old Testament faith. It still is a core affirmation of our faith today as Christians. God is one. He is one God. It, it, it's similar in weight to if I said Jesus Christ is Lord. That, that's a core affirmation of our faith, right? Jesus Christ is Lord. He's, he's basically saying, you believe the core truths of the faith. You believe who God is. That's great. That's good. You need to believe that. You need to believe the truth about God. But guess what? The demons believe that too. And what do they do? They shudder. The demons believe that God is one. The demons believe that Jesus Christ is Lord. That's clear enough in the Gospels, right? They know who he is. The demons know their theology better than Wayne Grudem knows his theology, right? The demons know the truth and they believe it. They're not under any illusions about the truth. But they shudder because they know they're going to be judged. Demons shudder because they know that they will be condemned. So, what kind of faith is that? I mean, they believe all the right things. They truly believe the truth about who God is, who Jesus Christ is, and yet that belief does not save them. It condemns them because they rebel. So, these demons are the first example that James gives. He wants to prove to them that faith without works is dead. Example number one, case study number one, the demons believe and they're going to be judged for their works. So we have this negative example of demons. They're an example of dead faith. But now James is going to turn to a positive example. This is really the heart of the argument. It takes up the most space in the passage, verses 20 through 24. Let's read here in verse 20. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works, and the scripture was fulfilled that says Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness, and he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. So the second example is Abraham. He, he, he's a positive example of, of faith. And that's what James is going to get into here. But I know that when I read that text, that, that a huge elephant just walked into this room, right? What, what was that? Did, did James just say in verse 21 that Abraham, our father, was justified by works? 
And then in verse 24, you see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. That seems to really contradict uh, the core teaching of Christianity, right? I mean, we believe, based on passages like Romans 3, that we are justified by faith and not by works. And then James here is saying, a person is justified by works and not by faith alone, and that Abraham was justified by works. And so that seems like a, a real apparent contradiction, right? seems like these, these guys are, are warring at each other. And there, there are some scholars that really believe that they were warring with each other, that, that there were two distinct Christianities that were being um, basically competed for in this time of history, and, and that one won out. But we don't, we don't believe that. We believe God's word is one testimony that declares the truth. And so when we see contradictions, here's what we don't want to do. We don't want to not search them out to find resolution. And we don't want to just explain away the one with the other either. We want to face each text head on and ask, what is this saying? And the thing is, when you do that, when you face a text head on and ask, what is this saying? Usually that contradiction is solved. That contradiction is settled, and you realize that these, in this case, we're going to see these passages teach exactly the same thing in different ways. But, but we want to face this head on today and look at what is James saying, because we know that Paul says we're justified by faith and not by works. Well, the place to start here is realizing that the word justification has a wide range of meaning in the Scripture. Now, when we think of justification, we think of Paul, right? We, th- we think of Paul's use of justification, which is essentially that if you're justified, that means that you have been legally declared righteous by God. And, and it's like this, that, that when Paul uses justification, he's saying that God, because of what Jesus Christ has done on the cross and taking your sin and giving you his righteousness, that when God looks at you, even though you are a sinner, if you have faith in Christ, God sees you with Christ's righteousness, and he declares you righteous in his law court. So that on the day of judgment, when judgment comes, God's not looking at you and counting your sins against you, but he's counting Christ's righteousness for you instead. And so you are legally justified in God's judgment system, in God's courtroom. That's what Paul means by justification. You have been legally declared righteous by God. No matter how many sins you've committed, those are all on Christ. His sinless life is on you. You are righteous in Christ. That's Pauline justification. That's what we think of. And the main reason we think of that is because in all of our textbooks, like Wayne Grudem's Systematic Theology, that's what they're using the term to mean. Justification is legal righteousness. And so, so really in our culture, we, we have flattened justification to mean only that. And that, that is one of the heart doctrines of the Christian faith. But we need to realize that in Scripture, that's not always what the word means. There are many passages, especially in the Old Testament, where justification does not mean that. And Jesus used justification to not mean that particular sense. Um, in Matthew eleven nineteen, this is Jesus speaking, and he says this pithy statement, wisdom is justified by her deeds. Jesus says wisdom is justified by her deeds. So let's say that only Paul's definition of justification was That's the only meaning. That would mean that Jesus is saying that wisdom is legally declared righteous by her deeds. That doesn't even make any sense, right? For wisdom to legally be declared righteous, that that can't be what justification means there. When, When Jesus says wisdom is justified by her deeds, he means wisdom is shown to be right by her deeds. Wisdom is shown to be wise by her deeds. Wisdom is vindicated by her deeds. 
He's using justified more in the sense of what we think of as vindication. It, it's something is demonstrated to be genuine. Something is demonstrated to be valid. And that's how James is using it in this passage. James is using justification not to speak of legally being declared righteous, but to speak of being vindicated. All right, so if we look back at the text, look back at verse 21, and we'll try to take that understanding to the text. Was not Abraham our father justified by works? When James is saying that, what he, what he means is that Abraham's faith is vindicated by his works. Abraham's faith is shown to be genuine by his works. And that happened when he offered Isaac in obedience to God. Let's take a drink here. You guys remember the story of Abraham. Um, God called him out of Ur, and he, he told him, I'm going to bless you, and I'm going to make your name great. I'm going to give you a son, and out of that son are going to be many nations blessed eventually. And so Abraham hears that. He obeys God's call. But years pass, and Abraham has not been given a son, right? And so Abraham's, you know, he, he, at points he goes his own way. He tries to get a son his own way through Hagar. But God comes to him, and he reassures him, Abraham, I'm going to fulfill my promise to you. I'm going to give you a son. He shows him the stars, and he says, your, your descendants are going to be as numerous as the stars through this son I'm going to give you. And in Genesis 15, it says that Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. Now, James actually quotes that verse in this passage. In verse 23, he quotes, Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. That is legal justification. That's Pauline justification, that God declared him righteous on the basis of his faith, right? So James knows that. James is not at odds with Paul here. James knows that Abraham was declared righteous by faith. But then, years pass, God gives them the son, the, the promised son is here, and then God comes to Abraham, and he, and, he, and he commands him to test his faith. Offer your son Isaac on the altar. Sacrifice your son. God's doing that to test his faith. And so, so we read the story in Genesis 22. Remember, Abraham's already been declared righteous by faith. But now, God's commanding him to sacrifice his son, and, and he gets to the point of raising the knife over his son on the altar. Now, some of us might hear that and think Abraham was a terrible person. Hebrews tells us Abraham believed that God would raise him from the dead. Abraham believed he would raise him from the dead. He believed that God would still bring his promises through the Son, but he had faith in God. So him raising the knife was demonstrating his faith in God. And God stayed his hand, and he said, Now I know that you fear me. Your faith has been vindicated. You are justified by this work. You're vindicated by this work. I know that that's a lot to follow because we need to redefine our terms in our minds, but do you guys follow that? Do you see that justification here is referring to being vindicated by works? Essentially, Abraham's faith, by which he was credited righteous before God, was shown to be genuine faith through a work. Through a work. And so what is James, let's go back to what is James' main point through this then? Once we get through that, that weed and the elephant has left the room, it's in the modular home now, all right? So, what is he saying? He's saying that Abraham, we know, is an example of saving faith. He, he is the father of the faith, and his faith was a faith that worked. Abraham's faith was a faith that expressed itself in the works. He says it a number of ways. In verse 22, his faith was active with his works. His faith was completed by his works. 
he was called a friend of God. The scripture was fulfilled that says that he believed God and it was counted as righteousness. So, on the one hand, the demons are a negative example. They believe all the right things, but they rebel against God, and their faith does not save. On the other hand, we have Abraham, who believes in God, and then that belief expresses itself in works that show it's genuine faith, that he really believes it. And so we have these two examples. On the one hand, dead faith. On the other hand, living faith. But James has one more example to give us. There's one more example in verse 25. And in the same way was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way. So we have demons, we have Abraham, and now we have Rahab the prostitute. You guys might remember the story of Rahab in the book of Joshua. The Israelites are going to conquer the promised land. And uh, Rahab was a Gentile woman in the city of Jericho. And she was a prostitute, she was an innkeeper and a prostitute. And she had heard, Rahab had heard what happened in the Exodus. She had heard all the things that got, she had heard about the ten plagues, she had heard about the redemption of Israel from slavery. And she was convinced that God was the one true God. Rahab was totally convinced of this. And so when she hears that the Israelites are coming to Jericho, she has a proper fear of what's about to happen to them. She, she believes in who God is. She believes that if God is for Israel, we cannot stand against them. And so when the Israelite spies come into the city, Rahab, by faith in that God, hides the spies. She hides them in her inn. She keeps them from being found out. And she asks them to spare her life when they come to take the city. And when they do, Jericho falls and Rahab is spared. And she becomes part of the nation of Israel. She becomes a worshiper of the true God. And she's even in the descendants of David and therefore of Jesus. Rahab becomes this, this main line um, descendant in the, in the descendants of Jesus Christ, our Savior. And she was a Gentile prostitute from Jericho. Now here's the question. Why does James include her here? Because he, he actually doesn't say anything new about faith and works here. Like, if you'll notice, he says in verse 25, and in the same way was not also Rahab justified by works. And so, so he's just saying Rahab's another example of the exact same faith. If you look at the qualities in verses 23 through 24 of faith and works, you could say all those things about Rahab. Rahab's faith was active with her works. Rahab's faith was completed by her works. Rahab was called a friend of God. So he's not telling us anything new about faith and works here, but what is he doing then? Why is he including her? James includes her not to teach us more about faith, but he includes her to make a point about who can have this kind of faith. This faith is not limited to Abrahamic patriarchs of nations, right? This faith is for anybody. Anyone can be saved by this kind of faith. Abraham was the father of Israel. Rahab was a Gentile prostitute. Yet both were sinners who put their faith in God and who were vindicated by their works. So anybody can be saved through faith. James wants the church to know, yes, you need to be saved by a faith that works, but you're not saved by works. You're saved by faith. You're saved by faith. You are a sinner who needs a Savior, just like Abraham did, just like Rahab the prostitute did. So anybody can be saved through, through faith. It's just a faith that works. And so... So we've seen these three examples of faith, right? We've seen demons, they're a negative example of they believe, but they 
they rebelled, and they're going to be judged. And then we've seen Abraham and Rahab, two very different examples of true faith, of living faith. We know that faith without works is dead, but, but what we need to do today is press in more on what type of faith is alive. Like, what characterizes living faith? And there are three characteristics of living faith, three elements of living faith that this text exposes. All right, so... Um, if, if today, this, this is the point where we can start to really test ourselves. This is the point where you say, God, shine the spotlight of your word on my heart today. Um, do I have these elements of faith? The first element is belief in God. The first element is belief in God and his word. Belief in the God of the Bible that he has revealed himself in his word. Belief means believing the propositional truths that God reveals about himself in his word. That's, that's the first element of living faith. Now, you, you saw in verse 19, he says, you believe that God is one, you do well. All right, so, so we know that that's an element of true faith. You need to believe the truth about God. God has revealed himself in this book through Jesus Christ, and you need to, you need to study this, and you need to know what it says, and you need to believe it. And so I have a few questions to ask. These, these are central questions about God. You need to ask yourself, do I really believe that? If, if I am honest with myself right now, looking at my own heart, do I believe these things? First, do you believe that the God of the Bible, the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, is the true God? Do you believe He's the true God? Do you believe that He is the creator of all things? And do you believe that you were created by this God? to glorify Him and enjoy Him. Second, do you believe that you are a sinner? Do you honestly believe as you look at your life that I am a sinner? I'm not just um, someone that makes mistakes, but I have sinned against the God who created me. I have made war against the God who created me and that my penalty that I deserve for my sin is death and hell. Do you believe that about yourself? Do you believe that I have sinned against this God and I deserve eternity in hell because of the kind of glorious God he is? And then third, do you believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, that God sent his Son into the world, that Jesus lived a sinless life, that he died bearing the punishment for your sin, that he rose again from the dead, that he ascended into heaven, that he's going to return to earth one day? Do you believe that one day the skies are going to break open and Jesus Christ is going to return to this earth? I mean, that, that is a hard thing to believe. It seems so foreign to where we live our lives every day. But that's what God's word says. Do you believe it? Do you believe that, that history is on a trajectory, moving towards the day that Jesus Christ returns and makes all things new? saving those who trusted in him and condemning those who did not. These are propositional truths that are required to have living, saving faith. So ask yourself, do I, based, based on that element so far today, as I'm letting God test me, is my faith real? Do I have the real thing? But we know, again, that the demons believe all that. The demons believe all that, and they're going to be condemned, and so we need more than that. That's James's point. So the second element is obedience to God. Obedience to God. This is required for saving faith. Now, I want to put a caveat here that the Bible does not say that perfect obedience is required for saving faith. But it says that obedience 
is, again, that tangible vindicating evidence that living faith is there. And so if there's no obedience in your life, then you know that as much as I might want to say I believe, I don't have saving belief. So ask yourself these questions. Are you regularly, again, not perfectly, but regularly saying no to your sin? Are you saying no to impurity? To sexual immorality? To gossip? To anger? To deceit? To jealousy? To division? To bitterness? To selfishness? As you look at your life, not that, you don't, not that we don't struggle with these things, but can you say that by God's grace I'm learning to say no to those sins? And then, on the other hand, are you regularly saying yes to God? Are you saying yes to faithfulness? Are you saying yes to purity? Are you saying yes to building others up? Are you saying yes to patience, to honesty, to contentment, to peacemaking, to forgiveness, to sacrificial love? When you look at your life, do you see these things? Do you see these works being regularly displayed in your life? And then a third question, when you don't say no to sin, when you you don't say yes to God, are you regularly repenting of that sin? Are you regularly confessing? Are you regularly receiving the grace of the gospel and moving ahead again in commitment to obedience to God? So that's the second element for saving faith, for living faith is obedience. We have belief, we have obedience. But this text challenged me because I think for a long time I had the assumption that if you believe the right things, you'll automatically do the right things. And so my, my assumption was always that, that if I'm sinning, I, I, I essentially have a knowledge problem. I, I don't know the truth as well as I need to know it because if I knew it, I would do the right things. I kind of viewed it as um, a stoplight where I know, and I'm colorblind, so this is funny for me, but I know that red means stop. And so, if it's red, I'm going to stop, right? That knowledge informs my decision, right? And I thought that was how this worked, that if you believe the right things, if you know the right things, automatically you're going to do the right things. But this text challenges that because the demons believe the right things. But they don't automatically do the right things, right? Like, if they believe it, why wouldn't they do it? And as I was was meditating on that question, why do demons believe and not do? And for that matter, why why do you have neighbors that believe, so-called believers, but then they don't do? And it's because of a heart issue. it's, It's the third element in this text. It's not explicitly stated, but it's all over the book of James that the fundamental issue that we have is not a knowledge issue. It's a heart issue. Romans 1 tells us that All people know God. All people know God and they suppress the truth in unrighteousness. The demons don't obey, not because they don't know who God is or don't believe in who God is. They don't obey because they hate God. People don't disobey just because they need to know more about God, but because they hate God. We all hate God. And and the third element of true living faith is love for God. Love for God is the bridge between belief and and action. If you have love bridging your belief to your action, then you have living faith. But if you don't have love for God, then no matter what you might say you believe, 
no matter how good you might try to live, your faith is dead. Your faith is dead. And so ask yourself these questions as you're, you're saying, God, test my faith. Do I, do I truly have living faith? Do I have the real thing? Ask yourself, do I desire to know God? Say, say, God, test me right now. Do I desire to know you? Like when I look at my heart, do I, do I sense that craving for you and you alone? Do, do I desire to be with you? Do I, desi- do I desire your presence? Like, do I, do I do things like study my Bible and pray and attend church services fundamentally because I crave you? Because I hunger for you? Or is there something else that's causing me to do those things? Ask yourself, do I, when I say no to sin, am I doing that fundamentally because I don't want to grieve your heart? Am I saying no to sin fundamentally out of a love for you or out of love for myself? It's very easy to say no to sin out of love for ourselves because we, we're, we're, we see that this is not going to get me what I want. But do you say no to sin fundamentally out of a love for God? And do you do good works out of a fundamental desire to magnify the glory of God? Or is the fundamental desire that's controlling your life love for self? As Christians, we, we often don't want to say, I love God. It seems, it, can, it seems to us like that's arrogant, you know, because we know that we sin. And it's true, none of us love God perfectly. But in the end of 2 Corinthians, Paul says, whoever does not love the Lord Jesus Christ, let him be accursed. And so Paul's not afraid to say, true believers love God. And we need to be able to look at our hearts and, and really ask the question, am I fundamentally motivated by love for God? And so those are the three elements of faith. We have, we have belief. We have obedience, and the bridge between the two that makes living faith truly alive is love for God. And at this point, we should really be able to look at ourselves and say, okay, so how did I do on the test, <laughs> right? Where am I? Now, I think there's probably three, three types of people represented here today as far as where, where am I on this test. On the one hand, there's some of you that are looking at this, and to the glory of God, you are able to say, I have living faith. God, thank you for assuring me today that you have given me faith that is alive, that I, that I do believe those things. I, I believe those truths about you. And by your grace, I am saying no to sin, and I'm saying yes to your word, and I'm growing in sanctification, and I crave your presence. I, I love you. I want to be with you. I want your glory. You're able to say yes to those things, and so you have living faith. And so what you need to do today is know that you need to continue cultivating that faith. It's alive, and that means that it needs, it needs food. It needs to be cultivated in order to continue growing strong. Now, some of you, on the other hand, you're, you're hearing these questions, and if you're honest with yourself today, the answer is no. No, I, I mean, yeah, I, I might believe those. I might sign my name on the dotted line that says, I believe this creed, and I might try to be a good person, but, but fundamentally, I don't love God. I'm not... I'm not living for God's glory. I don't really desire to be with God. I'd rather spend my day doing something else. I don't want to spend time getting my Bible out and being with Him. I don't, I don't really want to go to church to be with God. That might be where you are and you realize that you have dead faith. That on that day you won't be saved. And what you need is for, is for true living faith to be created in you. 
Well, then I think there are some of you, and this, this is not a term that we find in the book of James. It's actually a term we find in the movie Princess Bride. But some of you have mostly dead faith. Mostly dead faith. If you've seen the movie, you know the scene that um, Wesley is the main character, and he's been tortured, and he's dead. Uh, and his friends find him, and, and they realize um, he's dead. And then um, the, the doctors come, and they say, no, he's just, he's just mostly dead. And they, they don't, they've never heard that term, so they, they describe it. He, he still has the ability to be alive. He's, he's, he appears dead. Everything about him looks dead, but he's alive. And some of you today, you're, you're looking at these questions, and you're hearing the sermon, and you're saying, I, I, mean, I used to be alive. I used, I used to crave God that way. I used to, I felt like I was growing. I was passionate. But over the years, my faith has just gone so low, and my passion has just dissipated. And I'm just going through the routines of life, of Christian life. And, it, and you appear dead. But, you know, this is the kind of situation James was writing to. He's writing to a church that he knew had, had genuine faith, but that for all the appearances looked like it was waning and it was, it was dying. And he's writing to them to, to call them back to true faith. The thing is, if, if you look mostly dead, the only way to know if you were actually dead or mostly dead, to use those terms, is, is if you come back alive, right? If that situation never changes, you're not mostly dead, you're dead. But there's oftentimes in our Christian lives where, where our faith dissipates and we start going through routines, and what we need is our faith to be revived. We need revival in our hearts. And so there's three types of faith. We have living faith that needs to be cultivated. We have dead faith that needs to be created. And we have faith that is that is waned and weakened and that looks dead, that needs to be revived. But the amazing thing about the gospel is that I don't need to now go through each of those groups and say, so here's what you need to do, and here's what you need to do, and here's what you need to do. There's one source of living faith. There's one source of faith, whether you need faith created in you, or revived in you, or cultivated in you, all of us have one place to look, and that's Jesus Christ. There's one source for living faith. And, and why is that? Why is, why is Jesus Christ and why is the gospel of Christ the one source? Because again, the heartbeat of living faith is love for God. The heartbeat of living faith is love for God. And the only way that love for God can be cultivated is by seeing God's love for us. We love because he first loved us. That might be the fundamental principle of living faith in Scripture. We love because he first loved us. And so we cannot, if we see we need greater faith, what we should not do is pull up our bootstraps and try really hard to have faith. It's not going to work. What we need to do, again, as we said earlier, come empty-handed to the cross and let God make us alive in his hands. We need to, we need to look to the cross and we need to see Jesus Christ. We need to see his majesty. We need to see the Father's love for us and let that awaken faith in us. Let it create faith in us. Let it cultivate passion in us. Because when we truly see the beauty of God, it moves us to love Him. It moves us to realize, this is what I was made for. I am a creature that was created to enjoy the glory of God, and this is where it is, right here at the cross. And so we look there. And so I want to invite the music team to come back up as we reflect on God's love for us. To close, I, w- I just want us to direct our hearts there to the cross. So you can put your notes away and just enter into a time of meditation. 
God, I hope that right now you can say to yourself um, that, that I see which type of faith I have, whether it's living or dead or, or whether it needs to be revived, that you can be honest with yourself right now and say, I know that, that this is my need this morning, but that together, wherever you are, you would say, God can meet that need in the cross. So just close your eyes and listen to the gospel. Again, you are a sinner. You don't just make mistakes, you're a sinner, and your sins, every one of them, are declarations of your hatred toward God. Every time we sin, we're declaring, God, we hate you, we don't want you, we want to be independent from you, even though you created us. And the punishment for those sins is death and hell. And if it were not for God's intervention, we would continue on that path and we would face death and hell. But God did not respond to our sin by giving us over to them, but by sending his son. God responded to our hatred of him by loving us, by sending his son into the world to live the sinless life that we didn't live, to die the death that we deserve to die in our place, and to make a way for us to be forgiven of all of our acts of hatred toward God. And the thing is, God God does not only forgive us, He doesn't just forgive us and justify us, but then He adopts us into His family. He adopts us, He makes us His children. He loves us with the same love that He has had in eternity for His Son, Jesus Christ. We're now recipients of that love. And so now we know that everything in our lives is worked for our good because we have the assurance that the love that we see on the cross is the love that God is loving me with today, right now. We're going through our lives, and every moment we can be sure that this is an expression of God's grace to me. This is an expression of God's love to me. I am a child of God. I've been forgiven of my sins. Nothing can separate me from his love. This is the God of the Bible. This is the God that calls us to trust in him, to believe in him, to obey him, and to love him with all of our hearts, souls, minds, and strengths. So, Let's stand together and praise this God. Let's reflect on his love for us and offer ourselves to him for lives of faith.